As we continue our study of the book of Daniel, we are now to the last section of the book. Uh, The last three chapters, chapters 10 to 12, are all one vision. Um, Unfortunately, three chapters is quite a bit to take in one Sunday, so we're going to split it up over two Sundays. So I'm going to read the first part of the text for us here, and then we'll study it. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all over the three weeks, until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes were flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is God's word. Like I said, Daniel 10 to 12 is all one contained vision, and therefore we really have to study it over two weeks because it just is a really long section. And you may have noticed that even though I said that the text for today was going to be all of chapter 10 all the way through chapter 11, verse 35, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not actually going to read chapter 11. Uh, The reason is what comes in chapter 11 is the content of the vision that we saw set up in chapter 10. Uh, Whoever this person is, some people will say it's Jesus, that is my opinion as well, but some would say it's just uh, a regular angel. 
Uh, he comes to Daniel and he explains why he's going to give him the revelation that he's going to give him. And then in chapter 11, he gives him the revelation. And, and chapter 11 is really a detailed account of the history of nations that's going to come uh, after the Persian Empire. It's particularly focused on the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Uh, much of the chapter is focused on that history. And it is amazingly detailed. Um, one of the really cool things about Daniel is how particular it is in predicting world history that was not going to happen for hundreds of years uh, in the future. And so uh, I'm not going to actually go through that section of chapter 11 um, because what would inevitably happen is I would read a section of the text and then I would say, see how this happened in history? And then we would all say, yep. And then that would be the end and we move on to the next section. There's, there's not much for us as far as theological content in chapter 11 besides this idea. God knows. God knows. Um, he knew what was going to happen with the Persians and the Greeks and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and Rome, and you've seen this a number of times already in the book of Daniel. Uh, so if you do want to go through chapter 11, I actually printed off um, a copy of the, the best commentary that I've been using on Daniel and his notes on chapter 11. If you really want to work through all the history, some of you are history nuts and you like that kind of stuff, um, grab one of those uh, from the back table. You'll find them back by the plant over there. Um, I printed a couple off. It's about 15 pages long, but it'll outline how what the Bible said 600 years before it happened played out in real history. Um, so I'll leave that to your study. But for now, just know that chapter 11 is about the fact that God knows the, the future of not just Daniel's time, but also our time. Uh, he knows it's going to happen over the next week, year, century, millennia, uh, and he is in control of all of it for the sake of this church. But with that being said, we're, we're actually going to spend most of our time studying the text that I uh, read already for you, chapter 10, uh, because it touches on something that is uh, just not very commonly talked about in the Bible, and so this is our opportunity to talk about it. Uh, and maybe you've noticed that this is sort of the character of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's a very unique book, and uh, especially when it comes to the visions of Daniel, it can become uh, kind of heady and a little bit um, abstract for some of us, and I feel that, and don't worry, we're almost done with Daniel. But it is worth studying these things because God put them in the Bible for us. Uh, and so we're, we're going to take some time to study them. Just know this is not usually how, how, uh, how the Bible speaks, but it is helpful for us. So uh, as we look at the text of chapter 10, we see that uh, Daniel is mourning. Um, he's mourning probably because he has just missed the Passover celebration because he's still in exile. It tells us it's the 24th day of the first month, which means he would have just missed the Passover, which was started on the 14th day of the first month. And he receives this vision and a man comes in front of him and it says that uh, the man was dressed in fine gold and linen. Uh, he, was, he looked like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes were flaming torches, his arm and legs like, like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. Um, like I said, I'm convinced that this is Jesus. This mimics uh, the way Jesus is portrayed in the book of Revelation. Um, it also has a number of images that already have been used of God previously in the Old Testament. Uh, you don't really have to agree with me on this. I don't think it makes that much of a difference for the content of the book, but um, that's at least my opinion. In any case, Daniel is overcome with this, right? In verse 8, it says that he had no strength left, and his face turned deathly pale, and he was helpless. Um, good for us just to remember the glory of God in comparison to sinful people like us. That uh, we, I think, are tempted very often to think God is sort of like, uh, like a glorified version of Santa Claus, like he's going to be just nice to us and love us. And, and while it is true that God is love, he is also holy and just, and we are sinful people. And just being in the presence of God uh, would absolutely terrify, eviscerate um, us emotionally. And we see that right here in Daniel. 
Uh, but the message that he has uh, is interesting for us, and that's where we're going to spend the majority of um, our time. It says in verse 12 that he said, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding, to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, and then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And then later in the text, verse 20, he says, Do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you, what uh, I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Okay, so what's happening here? Um, what the Bible is trying to show us through either Jesus or this angel who shows up is that there is spiritual conflict behind earthly conflict. There's spiritual conflict behind earthly conflict. Uh, this Jesus, I'm going to say for the rest of the, the sermon, I think, uh, this Jesus comes to us and he says, I have been in a battle. I have been in a battle against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece will come later. And he even mentions Michael, your prince. Uh, the word prince is helpful for us here. Uh, maybe not immediately, but when we start to think about it, it is. What are princes? Most often we think of like uh, medieval times and like castles and this sort of thing. Princes are just uh, people of authority who are not the highest authority, right? They're, they're under the king. Uh, the same thing is true when it comes to the spiritual realm. Uh, there are those who have authority who are under the greatest authority. We usually call them angels. And the evil version of angels, we call them demons. And there is a battle that is waging in the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, between angels and demons. Uh, this is most often called territorial spirits. Uh, the idea that there are specific angels and demons who are assigned to specific nations or specific areas of the earth to do whatever their assigned mission is. If you want a definition, this is what I would call it. Angels and demons are engaged in a transcosmic war over spiritual geography that affects life on earth. So as the demons who are assigned to, for example, Canada, wage their war against God's people to destroy God's church, the angels of God who are also assigned to this area, to these people, Canada, they fight for the church, to protect the church. And maybe when you hear all that, you think to yourself, what? <laughs> maybe you've never heard that before. That's maybe completely new information for you, or you've maybe got a concept of angels and demons, but this seems like a little bit out there. I get it. <laughs> uh, I think there are two reasons for that. Uh, first of all, this is something that just doesn't come up very often in the Bible. This is the primary text for Daniel chapter 10. I'll talk about territorial spirits. Um, and so because it's just not something that's commonly talked about in the Bible, it's just not something that's commonly taught by pastors or preached from pulpits. Um, I think there's a second reason, though, and that is that uh, good, pious pastors don't want to be seen as kooks. And generally, it seems like in North American Christianity, the people who really obsess about texts like this and obsess about the spiritual realm are like crazy guys making videos on YouTube in their parents' basement about how like Donald Trump or Joe Biden is the Antichrist and there's going to be this war in Russia about all this other stuff. And, and generally, pious pastors are like, I'm going to avoid that whole problem. 
we're not going to avoid it uh, because it's in the Bible. And my job as the pastor of this congregation, what you called me to do is to tell you what's in the Bible. And so we're going to talk about it. But before we do, I want to make sure we put it in its proper context. This is important. Of course, God put it in the scriptures for us to know. It is also not the main message of the Bible. It is not the thing to obsess about. It's a good thing to know about. It's, it's helpful. I'll show you how it's super practical. Um, But what Satan wants us to do, like we learned last week, is to focus on the sort of obscure or less important parts of theology or spirituality rather than the most important things. So while we're talking about this today, don't lose the main message of the scripture. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's what our church exists for. It is not to do some crazy spiritual warfare or to figure out all sorts of things about the end times. Those stuff have importance, but not the most importance. Okay? So with that as the understanding, territorial spirits. Um, The first thing I think we have to wrestle with is just a question um, for each of us personally. Do I feel like my faith is a right now thing? I think this, this text and this idea of territorial spirits forces us to ask ourselves this question because it can get really easy as Christians to um, sort of separate ourselves from our theology just simply because of history. Like 2,000 years ago almost, Jesus died on the cross, was risen again, ascended into heaven, and you believe that, but it was 2,000 years ago. <laughs> There's a certain amount of separation that comes between now and then. And so we can almost turn our faith into a philosophical system that we like, a, an ethical system that works for us, tradition that makes us feel comfortable, rather than saying like, no, there's actually an eternal God who actually came down to earth and he continues to work in my life right now. This text forces us to wrestle with that because what we have to assert based on the text is that there are angels and demons who are right now in the unseen realm fighting over literally what we're doing right now. It's so easy to keep our faith uh, sort of an abstract thing rather than a right now thing. And maybe a way to test yourself on this is just to ask yourself as you practice your Christianity, do you see it as a right now thing? Do you see what we do on Sunday as God coming to meet you? The God, the real true God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you. He comes here and meets you in his word. And he meets you in the Lord's Supper. Does it feel abstract? Like, man, I can do it if it works for my schedule, but, but if it doesn't, I, I'm, I'm just going to stay home. I'll watch online. I'll come next week. Or do you feel like it's right now? Like, this is real. This matters. This text forces us to ask ourselves that question. Do we believe our our faith to be a right now thing? And I I would encourage you to meditate on that this week. As you think about how you practice your faith, is it traditionalism for you? Is it an ethical system for you? Is it a philosophical system for you? Or is it a real lifestyle where you live in Christ every single day with all of the benefits of the gospel that come from that and the purpose for your life now that you are Christ's and you live as Christ to the world around you? But for the balance of our time, I want to wrestle with this. What do I do with this information? Right? This makes me ask the question, of course, is my faith a right now thing? And that's healthy for us to wrestle with. But uh, I think we need to ask, like, what's the practical import of all of this? Um, the first place I think we need to start is with this. Angels and demons are not like you see them in the movies. And I think I need to say that as much as, you know, I trust that you're reading your scriptures and you can tell that from reading the scriptures, it is so easy in our society to believe that essentially demons are uh, either they're like horned with pitchforks or they're making people like turn their heads around 360 degrees and froth at the mouth and convulse on the floor and that angels are pretty like humanoid type beings with wings who just sing pretty songs and hold lambs and stuff like this. Um, That is not 
the biblical definition of angels and demons. A really good place to look at this is either the book of Ezekiel, it's probably the best place, but the book of Revelation also gives us a picture into this. Angels are amazing beings and they show up in different forms and it seems that there's even, uh, if we could say it like this, different even species of angels, different types of them. They're called cherubim or seraphim, different types of angels. And they do God's bidding, not always showing up like humanoid-type creatures. Um, they show up as uh, beings with wheels and multiple eyes and six wings in some places and all sorts of crazy things. And the demons, too, they are not like what we see in the movies. While it is true that uh, demon possession is a real thing and still actually happens today, uh, the demons generally don't work in that way. And the reason they don't is because their main goal is always to destroy the church. Uh, and I think it makes sense that if you understand that to be their goal, why you maybe are tempted by your society to see demon possession as primarily what demons are about. Because it's a distraction. But it's real. Demons do that. That's not what they're trying to do. That's what they're trying to get your attention on so that you think, well, if I made sure to go through my entire life without like playing with a Ouija board or consulting a medium or being possessed by a demon, then somehow I've, I've avoided the whole demonic problem. But they want you to believe that because they're doing something far more subversive. Their goal is always to destroy the church. And if you start to think about how that might happen and the nature of demons, I think you can see some of the practical nature of, of a text like this. So let's say, to, to make this real for us, um, you are a general in war and you are assigned to destroy a certain target. It's a city, it's a, it's a camp, whatever. How are you going to strategize how to destroy that city? Well, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to look at what resources do I have and what resources do they have? And then you're going to evaluate where, are, where am I strong and where are they weak? And how can I use my strength to exploit their weakness? So what are the resources that the demons have? Well, there are numerous resources that they have, but I would say the greatest of their resources is that they have time. They have time. The demons are not immortal like God. The angels are created by God. But they are more immortal, if I can say it that way, than us. You and I are going to live for 70 or 80 years if we have the strength, but the demons are going to keep living. They're going to keep existing because they don't die the same way we do. And so they have time. I only have 70 or 80 years to influence the church. And let's be honest, for the first 20, 25 of those, I had very little influence on the church. And eventually I'm going to get old and I won't make any sense when I talk and I won't have any influence anyways then. So let's say I have about 40, 50 years where I'm going to be able to influence God's church. But the demons are going to keep going. They're going to have time. When I'm far gone, they will still be here. In fact, the same demons that we deal with today are the same demons that Jesus dealt with in his time and Abraham dealt with in his time. They've always been here. And so what demons tend to do, because they have time over us, is they tend to play the long game. They tend to play the long game. It's so tempting for us to think that, in general, demons are going to work with big shows of power, possessing people, frothing at the mouth, convulsing on the floor, those things like I mentioned. But they tend to play the long game because that will actually accomplish their goal. Think back to my, my general analogy, or the, the general trying to target a certain city. You might see that you have more firepower than them, or you might see that you have maybe a geographic advantage, or you might see that you have a resource advantage. 
And you might not actually have to attack the city. All you need to do is surround it and cut off all of its water supply or food supply, and you will starve them out because you have time, and they don't. And the demons did the same thing with us. Rather than always try to take down a church in one fell swoop, or take down a Christian in one fell swoop, or take down a family in one fell swoop, they will play the long game. They'll play it out over generations, centuries, to try to destroy God's church. So how might this happen? Well, to illustrate it, I want you to imagine that this Ambo is believing everything that the Bible has to say and living according to it. And you're a Christian and you are holding on to it tightly with both hands. Now, of course, you're still a sinner. You still need forgiveness, but, but you know what the scripture says and you live by it. Uh, what the demons will not do to a person who is holding on tightly to God's word with both hands is say, hey, you know what you should do? You should walk 10 steps away from God's word because that would never work. I know the joy of the Lord that I have in his word. Why would I walk that far away from, from God and his word? And so what the demons will do is they'll say, well, you don't have to hold on with two hands. That's a little bit overkill. You only need to really hold on with one hand. And maybe they tempt me to do that and I only hold on with one hand. It doesn't feel like I've done anything particularly evil, but guess what? I'm going to have kids. And my kids are going to look at me and they're going to see me holding on to God's word with one hand and they're going to think, well, that's Christianity because dad says he's a Christian. And so my kids grow up holding on to God's word with one hand and guess what? Those same demons that tempted me to take my one hand off the word of God say to my kids, you don't need to hold on to God's word. You just need to be close to it. So why don't you take off that other hand? And it doesn't seem like they've done anything particularly evil, but they got one step farther away. And guess what? They're going to have kids. And those kids are going to look at their parents and say, well, that must be Christianity, not really holding on to God's word, but definitely standing near it. And that same demon who tempted the kids and the grandkids is going to come to that second generation, third generation and say, you know what you should do? You need to stand so close to God's word. People will think you're weird. Why don't you just take a step away? And guess what? They have kids. And that generation sees their parents living what they call Christianity, but it's not holding on to God's word with both hands. And the cycle continues. No one generation thinks they've done anything particularly evil, but step by step, generation after generation, the demons play the long game until after seven, eight, ten generations, you have people standing really far away from God's word saying, I'm a Christian, when they're really not. When they're not holding on to God's word. Do you think that's happened? Do you think that's happened in our nation? Do you think that's happened in North American Christianity? Generation after generation, slight temptations like, wow, you're really weird if you hold on to that old doctrine or that old practice. Why do you got to take yourself so seriously? Isn't that a little bit overkill? And step by step, generation after generation, Christianity moved away from actually holding on to God's word. What if I told you that it used to be common practice in the Christian church for any person who wanted to come to the Lord's Supper to go to his pastor's house or to the church office and have a session of private confession with that pastor. In fact, pastors' parsonages used to be constructed in such a way that there was a separate entrance into their house so that people could show up at their house, speak only to the pastor, and not bother the rest of the pastor's family so they could confess their sins every single week before they came to communion. Sound a little bit like overkill? That's what generations started to think, and they stepped farther and farther away from it. 
What if I told you that people used to come to church early, not just because they got up early, but because they wanted to spend time in prayer, preparing for worship, thinking about God, meditating on the text that was going to be preached in the sermon. They didn't show up right on time or maybe three minutes late because that's what they could handle. No, they made it the centerpiece of their entire week to be in God's house. Sound a little bit like overkill? Generations of Christians stepped farther and farther away from that practice. What if I told you that the idea of living in a place where there was not a faithful Christian church was unheard of? That if you were thinking of moving, you would never move away from a faithful Christian church. Sound a little bit like overkill? What if you need a different job? What if you don't like living in the city? Generation after generation told us, it's okay. You don't have to be that close to God's word. What if I told you that fathers used to intentionally teach their children God's word? That when Christian children thought of who had all the answers to the Bible, they didn't think of their pastor. They thought of their dad. Because every night at the dinner table, their father opened the scriptures and taught it to them because their father knew it. Sound a little bit like overkill? Can we outsource that education to the pastor? So generation after generation thought, and we we got away from that. What if I told you that 10% of your income in an offering used to be standard? Everybody did that. Sound a little bit like overkill? Generation after generation thought that. Entertainment, materialism, all these things pulled us away from God's word. And I'm not necessarily pushing back on any one of those things to specifically that spot. But I'm asking you, do you see this? Do you see how as a culture, as a church body, we have floated away slowly from a deep connection to God's word, from a life-defining connection to God's word? Have you seen it in our nation too? We didn't become a nation that allowed all sorts of sexual sin overnight. We didn't become a nation that let capitalism run roughshod over the poor overnight. We didn't become a nation who wanted to kill its children in the womb overnight. We didn't become a nation that worships money and entertainment overnight. It happened slowly. Generation after generation, the demons who live here worked on the generations and generations and generations, and here we are. That's the practical need for our practical application for you of territorial spirits. This is our life. The demons are working and the angels are fighting, but, but we have passively walked along with the demons down the path that they would like us to walk rather than holding tightly to God's word. If I can make this very scriptural for you, I want you to think about the text in Ephesians chapter six, where the apostle Paul is talking about this exact thing. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Do you notice the word that keeps showing up in this text? Stand. Right, here's the whole text. You don't have to read it, but just look at those highlighted places. Stand, 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 stand. The Apostle Paul's plan for fighting back against the demons is don't do anything. Don't move. Don't try to be cool. Don't try to just spice things up. Just stop. (laughs) 
Just stand firm. Hold on to the word. Don't take one little step away. Because what you have in God's word is already true. It is already the message of the gospel. And nothing that you can change about it will make it better. Stand firm. I feel like sometimes when I read this text, I understand Paul because of my kids. Right? Like, maybe those of you who have kids, you've told your kids, like, just don't move. How'd that work out for you? Turns out three-year-olds and 63-year-olds and everyone in between really struggles to listen. When God tells us to stand, 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 we think, yeah, but I could change this, right? And the trouble is that's what we've done and we need to repent. We need to repent of that. To repent of our upper middle class Western society life where we adore all of the things of this world more than we adore God, not because any one of us is so evil that we decided just to throw away God, but because we are victims of territorial spirits. We're victims of generations of generations who have taken little steps away from God. So what do we do? What do we do now? Well, of course, we repent. We repent for our sins. We repent for the sins of our fathers and mothers, generation after generation, who didn't hold tightly to God's word. And then we know that Jesus has forgiven us for that. You're righteous right now. But then there are some really practical things, actually, that this text can teach us, and I want you to take notes on them if you do have notes. Five things that this text and Ephesians teaches us we can do if this is the reality that we live in. The first of those is to pray. To pray for us and for others. Now, that same text from Ephesians chapter 6 that I read before, it continues, and the Apostle Paul finishes that whole section of the armor of God by saying this. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And that ought to be where we start. You and I can't defeat territorial spirits, but Jesus can, and we can pray to Jesus. And so pray. Pray the Psalms. Pray those words against your enemies in the Psalms as you think about the demons, those who want to destroy the church bit by bit, brick by brick. And then listen to the word. Listen to the word preached. Read your Bible. Be in your devotional life. Be in a Bible study. Be around other Christians who speak God's word to you. Make God's word dwell richly in your life. The text tells us this as well. Daniel, who is terrified by the presence of Jesus, is strengthened when? When Jesus speaks to him. Right? He says, when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. If this whole thing scares you, hear God's word. Christ has saved you. Christ has baptized you. Christ feeds you so that you have a promise, a peace that goes beyond understanding that no demon can touch. So hear God's word and then speak his word. Open your mouth and let those words come out of your mouth because you know who hates the word of God? The demons. (laughs) When they hear you pray the Psalms out loud, when they hear you sing songs about Jesus out loud, when they hear you confess the creed out loud, it drives them away. This place where God's body dwells, speaking his words, is a holy place. Not because this particular piece of ground is particularly special, but because you are, because you're in Christ, and you have an open Bible, 
and you're speaking his words. That's again what the apostle Paul said, right? He said, pray for me, how? Well, pray for me that whenever I speak, the words may be given me so that I can fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel and declare it fearlessly as I should. The same is true for you. Open your mouth, speak what God speaks. Then play the long game. We can learn something, I think, from the demons. Uh, It's easy for us to want to play the short game, to try to say, okay, well, we just avoided like being possessed by a demon and we won the war against the demonic where the demons are thinking, no, we're playing the long game. Well, guess what? We can play the long game too. Not any one of us, but us as a family. Because I got kids and you see all the kids who sit up here. And even if you don't have kids who are in this congregation, you can help raise up these young Christians to be the next generation that, that takes a step back towards God's word rather than taking a step away from it. You and I will be long gone, but cross of life, I hope, I pray, will still be here and will still be taking steps back towards God's word every year, every generation. We can start that by showing our kids that this is not a place you go to have fun. This is not a place you go because you're obligated. This is not a place you go because your friends are here, although those things are all true. But it's a place to go because God is here and God's word is being preached here. And we need that. We need that in our family. We need that in our, in our world. And then finally, trust the longer game. The demons are playing the long game and and we can play the long game, but there's an even longer game. Jesus is playing it. Jesus has died to throw Satan out of his position as the accuser of God's people, like we heard in Revelation. No longer can Satan say about you, you're not good enough for God. God does not love you. He has no authority to do that. He's lying. You are in Christ. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are promised eternity. And even if the territorial spirits seem to be taking ground, even here, they cannot take you. And they cannot take God's word away from you. And so trust that Jesus will be faithful to you. Come back to his word, pray the Psalms, and fight back against the forces of evil. Brothers and sisters, this is super practical and it's super real. But the answer is super simple. God's word. Hear it, pray it, speak it, trust it, live it. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this, again, challenging word. As we look at the world around us, we can see how the demons who live even in a place like this have worked their evil. They've worked it in the churches. They've worked it in society. They've worked it among us. We repent of that. We ask for your word, that your word would forgive us, empower us, set us on a trajectory towards your word again, that we can love it, that we can grow in piety, that we can show our children the value of this word, and that we can win this nation back, not in some sort of nationalistic way, but for your glory and with your gospel. We pray that that starts here among us in your name. Amen.